This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing one-on-one comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services, including women's health, chronic pain treatment, TMJ, and more. With four locations in Fox Point, Grafton, Brookfield, and McGuanago, Wisconsin. More information at freedompt.com. Welcome to the Freedom Talks podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Brady, and today I'm here with Spencer Trito. Um, He is SFMA and FMS certified uh, and is also strong uh, first body weight and kettlebell certified. Uh, So he's one of our more knowledgeable um, PTs when it comes to uh, exercise and um, taking a look at kind of the whole body. Um, as it pertains to whatever's going on um, with whatever you're dealing with. Uh, so, Spencer, how are you doing today? Doing well, Brady. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, um, let's get right into kind of why we're here. So, today we wanted to kind of pick your brain about uh, feet and running um, and uh, kind of how the body is built to run and how you kind of uh, take a look at things uh, in the clinic uh, and then also kind of what happens during a running assessment is kind of something I think some of our uh, listeners might be interested to think about but I also know that uh, you kind of have some thoughts on running that you would like to kind of get across and and share uh, based on research that you've done and courses that you've attended and um, your experience practicing, treating runners and uh, feet in general? Sure. So probably to start off with, you know, my background is is pretty diverse and I've had, you know, probably lots of different thoughts about running um, over the years, you know. Um, Starting off, like I was, you know, all through high school, I was a soccer player and, and a swimmer and I absolutely hated long distance running. And it just never felt good for me, you know, if, you know, playing soccer was one thing because you're kind of sprinting and lateral movements, but like long distance running, like I would always get shin splints and headaches and just never felt like good doing it. And uh, that kind of stayed with me through most of college. My first like 5K that I ever did in college was just an absolute disaster and, and a mess. But um yeah, you know, and then going through PT school, I went through PT school uh, between the years of uh, 1995 and 2000. And, uh, you know, back then, things were, were definitely um, based off of older research and information. So you still kind of learned that a heel strike was the way to go. And you were kind of coming off a of research that was more um, typically funded by shoe companies and things like that. So, of course, you know, that research was going to kind of make it a little bit more apparent that you needed a good, solid shoe to run. Uh, And in terms of the foot, we were also learning a more classic, probably more classic podiatric uh, method in which, um, you know, it was very... Uh, important to support the foot and have really good supportive shoes and maybe an orthotic. So that was kind of like my basic understanding coming out of PT school. And, um, you know, it was also kind of uh, thought that 
running was really bad for your knees and things like that. So um, right after PT school, I had a job working in pediatrics where I worked with a lot of kids with developmental disabilities. And uh, so, you know, really got to experience um, what human movement uh, was all about from a normal developing um, infant, toddler, adolescent, and then someone that had, um, you know, developmental disabilities like like cerebral palsy, which was a, a lot more challenging. But, you know, it gave me a really good understanding of, of movement and, and, uh, and a real interest in that. And then, uh, then I did travel physical therapy for quite a long time, and I worked in a variety of settings in which uh, I, I treated, you know, uh, orthopedic injuries as well as acute care and skilled nursing facilities. And, you know, so I got to see a huge gamut there where I was working with athletes, but then I was working with people, you know, that were in nursing homes and kind of broken down, you know, not moving very well. And, uh, and I finally settled um, on orthopedics and really kind of fell into my groove there and really started liking the human body. Um, I moved to Hawaii back in 2008 and living in Hawaii, I think was the most transformative uh, for me in how I thought about the foot in general. And, and that kind of leads eventually into running. But, you know, in, in Hawaii, most people, it's a barefoot community. So most people are wearing really thin soled flip flops, um, or nothing at all on their feet. Uh, if they are wearing shoes, it's just to, to go to work. Uh, generally, you don't see too many you know, sneakers or tennis shoes out there. Um, and so as a result, I, I, I did a lot of surfing out there, and I would walk barefoot to the surf spot that I would go to. And initially, that was uncomfortable. But as the months went by, my feet started to toughen up. And, and I could start to feel a real change in my own um, strengths and, and, and how my body was moving in a more barefoot way. Uh, as I was treating in an orthopedic clinic out there, I, you know, out of the year that I lived there, I can probably count on one hand um, how many foot and ankle injuries uh, that I had uh, versus, you know, here in Wisconsin, it's a daily basis that I'm treating foot and ankle injuries, you know. So out there where it was a more barefoot community, and, you know, thin-soled flip-flops, which I had, you know, been told by countless, you know, professors and other people that were um, experienced clinicians that flip-flops are the devil in terms of your feet. Um, I wasn't seeing those problems, you know. I had, you know, people in their 80s and 90s with impeccable balance, you know, compared to here, you know, people have a lot of struggles with their balance. So, um, I, I started to see a shift um, in my thinking and approach. And, and so I bought a pair of Vibram Five Fingers when I lived out there and started hiking. And, you know, the strength in my feet started to improve. And eventually I moved to Colorado. And there's a huge running community in Colorado. So I thought, well, you know, maybe this is something I should try again. But I bought a book on barefoot running, and because I wasn't a runner, I didn't care how long it was going to take me to kind of relearn better running mechanics. And so I started um, training myself, and I, th and I think 
probably, you know, by the, you know, with walking barefoot and being barefoot in Hawaii and then starting the barefoot training, it took me about two years, but I, I changed my running gait from a heel strike to a forefoot strike and, uh, running all of a sudden felt good. And it, you know, I didn't have the, the knee pain or the shin splints. Um, I used to get headaches from running and I wasn't getting that anymore. So, um, the whole dynamic changed and I started really pursuing continuing education classes uh, focused on foot mechanics and running and things that were going to delve into newer research. And uh, that's kind of how I ended up where I am with treating runners, you know, and having a different outlook on the foot. So I want to break some of that down um, in terms of, uh, so Let's let's start with kind of your transition when you when you hit Hawaii and you kind of have all of this anecdotal evidence based on um, what you're treating and what you're seeing compared to what you were seeing in the Midwest and out east. Um, so, is there a lot of new research that's come out that's kind of um, been based on like the people that are are more of a flip flop? or barefoot culture compared to those that are um, normally in a very structured shoe? Um, yeah, I, I think one of the, yeah, I think there's been some new research probably since the early 2000s is when, um, you know, people started looking at the foot a little bit more in depth. But uh, one of the major breakthroughs was there was a, a book I can't remember if it was like 2008, 2009, but it was called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. And that was, that was a huge book. And, you know, it really focused on um, a, a native population from Mexico who run their culture is, is a group of runners that run hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, uh, sometimes a day and throughout their lives and virtually have no injuries and, and, uh, are, are very fast at running hundreds of miles and they wear very thin, um, pieces of rubber on, on their, on their feet, um, that are called harachas, which, which are basically used like a, a thong to kind of lace around their foot and hold it on there. But you know, and that, that's it. So nothing supportive at all. So that book came out and it kind of, uh, started the barefoot running craze and uh, got people thinking about it probably even more. Um, there's a physical therapist named Irene Davis, who formerly was at the University of Delaware and now is at uh, Harvard University. And uh, she's one of the leading researchers on um, barefoot mechanics and, and running. Um, and she works closely with a, another um, professor out of Harvard named Daniel Lieberman, who is a um, paleoanthropologist and studies human evolutionary biology and kind of looks kind of into our roots as humans and what developed um, to allow us to run really great distances and, uh, and kind of putting that together. Because, you know, there are some thoughts on, you know, if, if we are born to run, uh, really long distances, why are we plagued with so many injuries? So I think that depending on what research you look at, um, annually between 30 and 75 percent of runners get injured, you know, that's which, a, which that's, that's, a, that's a huge number. So if we were 
evolutionarily biased to run long distances, why do we get plagued with injuries today, right? And so there are some people that think, you know, maybe we weren't born to run. Um, but uh, some of the work that Daniel Lieberman has, has found, it's, it's fascinating stuff, you know, like we're one of the few mammals that, that sweat, right? So sweating allows our body to cool itself while we're on the move compared to like, if you think of your dog, you know, a dog is super fast, um, but eventually has to stop and lie down and pant to get rid of heat out of their body. So most mammals have to lie down and pant, uh, which does not allow for them to be long distance runners. Um, humans don't have to do that. So some of the, the thought is, you know, early hunting, persistence hunting was we would chase animals over sometimes days until they dropped over dead, you know, um, uh, another thing that that uh, Daniel Lieberman was really interested in was uh, the movement of our heads. Um, when we run, we have a, a mechanism in our necks and head that basically controls and stabilizes our head, um, which is makes it really efficient to run lo really long distances. Compared to other mammals, their head kind of moves forward and backwards, which is really good for, for speed but not good for the long run, right? So we have all of these adaptations that, that really strongly suggest that we are long distance runners. So, you know, um, kind of based off of that, there's been a lot of research as to like, well, if we're long distance runners, why do we have so many injuries every year? Okay, so then let's kind of break that down um, in terms of, so you're looking Right. When you have foot or ankle injuries, right, a lot of times um, it's a case among uh, different healthcare providers to look specifically what's wrong with the tissues and ligaments in the ankle, what's wrong with what's going on in the foot, um, and kind of diagnose and figure out what's going on there and then treat specifically that. Now, from what I'm hearing that um, kind of us, if you're going supportive shoe versus barefoot shoe, there's obviously something going on when you have a barefoot runner, they're doing something differently, their, their body's reacting differently to the barefoot running rather than having that supportive shoe. So from your perspective, what's going on and how are you looking at someone who's got an, who has an injury? Um, with their ankle or with their foot? Sure. So I, I think first is, it's good to go back to the beginning and kind of look at um, what is the foot, right? You know, um, Leonardo da Vinci had a really cool quote um, way back when that he basically said, the human foot is a masterpiece of engineering and a work of art. And I, I completely agree with that. It, when you look at the structure of a foot, it's really cool and complex, and there's a lot going on. Um, the foot has 26 bones, 33 joints, and depending on how you count them, because um, you have interosseous muscles and lumbrical muscles um, deep in your foot, and there's multiple of those, but sometimes they're counted as, you know, just your lumbricals, and sometimes it's you've got four lumbricals. Um, so you have anywhere between 24 and 30-plus muscles, 
between your lower leg and your and your deep foot muscles that control your foot and ankle. Um, and when you compare that to the hand, you have 27 bones in the hand, 20 joints in the hand, and 34 muscles, 17 in your palm and 18 in your forearm. So the foot is extremely similar to your hand, right? So, um, and I think that's important to understand because uh, w- when you look at your hand and how complex it can be, uh, you would never think of wanting to do any um, fine and intricate movements with gloves on, right? You wouldn't be able to do that very well. Uh, if you put really tight mittens on your on your hands all day long, um, every single day, you can imagine that your hand would be very stiff and probably get pretty weak because you w- wouldn't be using it to the degree that, that, that you should be. So, um, how is, so why should we treat the foot any different, right? So if we put supportive shoes on our feet that are kind of scrunching our toes up and not allowing for the joint articulations to work and move, not allowing for the muscles to, to work, um, essentially what we're doing is we're stiffening up those joints and we are weakening those muscles and, um, and that, that is generally what creates a lot of problems. Uh, going back to the history of shoes, shoes were kind of first discovered about 40,000 years ago um, in terms of like archaeology when they look back. And back then it was just thin leather shoes to protect your feet. So you can kind of think of like moccasins or something like that, but even more primitive. And that maintained uh, basically the shoe was this thin piece of leather for a really long time. And, and you first start to get into like a heeled shoe in the 15th century. Uh, and the, the whole reason that the heeled shoe and the, and the narrow toe came about was um, it originated in Persia and it was for riding horses. Uh, the heel kept the the shoe in the stirrup, and the narrow toe allowed for the the shoe to go into the stirrup easier. So there was a real functional purpose about that because pe- people rode horses, especially um, you know in the war. You don't want your foot to slip out of the stirrup. So that's kind of why the the first heeled shoe came out. And then you kind of go into the 15th to 17th century. And, you know, as people migrated to Europe, um, a lot of aristocracy and the you know, monarchies and things like that, they kind of picked up on that and made it fashionable. So, it, um, you know, a heeled shoe made you taller. So a lot of the, the men would wear heeled shoes because they seemed taller and more formidable, right? Um, you know, it was a sign of wealth. And that's where you start to see shoes become a fashionable thing. So, you know, if the aristocracy is doing it, you know, then that starts to trickle down eventually to the common person, right? And, you know, to show off your your wealth and, and all of that. So, um, you know, and, and that that has existed since then. You know, you, you, you look at any business person's shoe, there's, there's a pretty sizable heel to it narrow toe, you know, nice leather, all of that. And then you, you delve into 
um, women's shoes and it gets even more complex and super high heels and you know it's it's a, it's a real fashion forward thing uh, jump to 1970s and that's when the first modern running shoe came out and uh, generally that's credited to Nike and uh, you know as Nike was kind of starting their company up and really getting into the the running craze you know one of the uh one of the founders of nike had written a book on on running and running as a pastime and for exercise so you start to get all these business people that have not really done a whole lot physically um they've been wearing high-heeled shoes and then they start running in a you know zero drop or you know more more neutral shoe and they're starting to get all kinds of aches and pains. So then Nike builds a heel into their shoe to allow for, you know, the the accommodation to the the Achilles and you know, and then the rest is history. All kind of running shoe companies since then make a heel into their their running shoe. So even though like sneakers generally appear flat, most often there's going to be a, a higher heel to forefoot ratio, which then kind of throws off a lot of mechanics and makes it more conducive to running with a heel strike versus a forefoot strike. So um, traditional barefoot running, I'm, I'm sorry to go off on that tangent, but to get back to your, your question. So what are the differences between forefoot or barefoot running mm-hmm. and, um, and shod running or running with shoes? And, and the big differences are if you are to run barefoot and you were to land on your heel, it would hurt really bad. There's not enough padding there to sustain the load imposed by running. It's fine for walking, but running, if you land on your heel, the, the forces applied are going to be somewhere between three to four times your body weight. You know, So that, that's a ton of force being directed through your heel. Um, landing on your forefoot you have the transverse arch in the in the front of your foot you have the longitudinal arches in the uh, inside and outside of your foot that help take up some of the cushion generally if you land on your forefoot your your foot's going to be more underneath you so you have a more bent knee a more flexed hip and that helps take the compression off your body and it's going to be easier on your body. So in, when, you're land, when you're running with shoes, most often you're landing with a heel strike. You don't necessarily feel that impact because you have the cushion of the shoe, um, but those forces are still happening, right? So um, those are the major differences between running uh, barefoot versus running with a shoe is that most people that run barefoot are going to automatically kind of adopt a forefoot um, stride and uh, people that run with shoes are going to most often have a, a heel strike. So why is the heel strike so much more conducive to injury <clears throat> and issues rather than if you are landing on the the forefoot? I guess like you kind of answered that in terms of like there's way more force going through mm-hmm. the heel, but how does that affect the body? Um, elsewhere that might cause problems compared to like like when you said uh you switched in colorado to running on your fourth forefoot you switched your gait 
and it helped with shin splints and kind of the problems that you were having running, mm-hmm. um, even up to the headaches compared to when you were heel striking in high school and, and that kind of thing. Right. So, um, couple different things. So uh, when you, when you are they they found they found, found with different research that like landing with a heel strike where your leg is way out in front of you um, number one you're going to land with a, a fairly straight knee. Uh, you're going to land with a fairly dorsiflexed Foot. Which means for the common so person. so your toes are coming up towards your your shin. Um, now when when that happens and then your foot has to lower itself down um, in a controlled manner so that your foot doesn't just slap and hit the ground, you're using a muscle in the front of your leg called your anterior tibialis. And that has to work in an eccentric fashion, which means the muscle's contracted, but it's it's stretching out at the same time to control that motion down. And that's a pretty hard contraction. And when you, you know, equate, you know, three to four times the weight of your body that that little tiny muscle has to control, that's going to put a lot of stress and pressure through your shin and, you know, potentially cause shin pain or, or sh- what, shin splints or things like that. When you land with an out, you know, uh, an extended knee, that's a lot of forces coming through your knee. Um, that, you know, and, and oftentimes that's kind of shown to have, um, be related to, you know, patellar tendon syndrome or runner's knee, um, you know, because you're just kind of jamming things up and then your knee has to kind of come over that. So there's a lot of stress and force there. Uh, that impact force, you know, travels up your body, you know, and it's going to rattle you wherever you are. When, when you run one mile, your foot hits the ground approximately a thousand times, right? So if you're running, say, 20 miles per week, over the course of a year, your foot is going to hit the ground over 1 million times, right? So while it might not bother you, you know, during one run, over the course of your foot hitting a million times in a year, all that stress is eventually going to add up into some form of repetitive stress syndrome. And sometimes that manifests as plantar fasciitis, sometimes it's shin splints, sometimes it's runner's knee, sometimes it's hip problems, back problems, all of it, depending on on who you are, you know, um, where your body physically is and your strengths and weaknesses and things like that. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, also there's, there's more force that the hip has to control. And so you see a lot, lots of times, um, a hip drop in people where, you know, the, the leg that they land on the, the opposite side hip dips down. So there's a lot of forces on the lateral hip of the leg that's on the ground. And those forces can, can translate to, to knee problems as well, or, you know, it, it can make the leg kind of internally rotate. So the knee kind of turns in, um, which then can lead to problems with the foot as well. So the hip controls the foot, the foot controls the hip, 
and and so all kinds of problems arise just out of that control. So if you're landing forefoot strike, uh, your foot initially is going to land a little more plantar flex, so toes towards the ground, right? Which means that that anterior tibialis muscle doesn't engage the way that it does when it's dorsiflexed. So that muscle doesn't have to control for foot slap. So you're not going to get shin splints, right? Um, you start to utilize your Achilles tendon the, the way that it's intended to be utilized. So it's, it's essentially a gigantic spring. So you land with your toes, your heel starts to drop and just touch the ground before it raises up again. And what that does is it causes a stretch into the Achilles, which then stores and releases energy, right? So it, it's free energy to utilize to help pro, to propel you forward. So, um, so you're using the Achilles instead of, as, as, so it's more efficient. You're not using as much muscular force, right, to propel you. Um, your foot is generally going to be more underneath your body, which puts a different angle at your knee. Um, it's already kind of engaged and flexed, and so it's more cushioning, and you're not slamming into that knee, causing bad forces at that at that joint. Um, and then you know your, your hip doesn't have to control as much. Uh, force with that you know it's one time your body weight versus three to four times your body weight so it doesn't have to work as hard and um, so generally those impact forces are way less so when they look at, when they look at people running on a force plate um, one of the biggest um, issues is uh, there's there's generally a spike when when you initially land and it's that spike that is the most damaging and let me see if I can find that study real quick so uh, there was a, a study that that was done by Irene Davis and when they when they looked at the so that's co basically called your your vertical average loading rate um, and then um, what, what they found was that suddenness of impact um, was I think uh, the, so so let me let me take a step back. So uh, the foot is in contact with the ground for about a quarter of a second, which is nothing. But you know again, a million times a year that adds up that quarter of a second adds up and the the part that seemed to make a difference that initial first contact is only 50 milliseconds long but what they found in this particular study was that they so they took a group of runners that um, consisted of 200 about 240 women and they 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 specifically chose runners that only heel striked right and because that's what most runners typically do um, these days is, is heel strike. And so they looked at, at these runners and they took uh, a group that basically had significant injuries in which they had to seek medical uh, help. 
And then they took the, uh, another group from this group that had never had a running injury in their life. And they looked at those impact forces that they, that they were having. What they found was the, the running group that had no injuries and weren't injured over the course of the study had such a significant lower impact force when they hit the ground compared to the people that, um, that had the injuries. And, uh, so that vertical or that that imp, that initial impact force is really kind of what they're finding to be the driving force of injuries. So what does that mean? How hard are you hitting the ground when you land? So as we just discussed, landing with a forefoot strike allows you to land softer, right? Uh, landing with the heel strike generally makes you land harder. That being said, some heel strikers can land really softly, you know, so it's generally regarded that forefoot strike is better, but it, you know, if you can start to land softer, then that's going to help improve things. That can help as well. Yeah. So for someone, I, I, I know I've seen you in the clinic working with people kind of trying to change their gait or change their running style. There's, I know you said there's like three running styles mm-hmm. um, and helping them change kind of uh, how many times per minute they're hitting the ground and um, trying to help those who have had injuries kind of change things in their running forms um, to make them less injury prone um, to kind of prevent some of the things that are happening to them. And I've also seen you kind of when you're recommending uh, footwear changes, um, when you referred to the drop, like finding a, a shoe that goes from a 12 millimeter down to a six millimeter and then maybe down to a zero millimeter. Uh, and you always kind of talk about how you, that should be done very slowly. So for anybody listening, how might they start to change their running forms um, and kind of what are your recommendations to kind of shift into um, a, a running style um, or things that they can do to their running form as it is to help decrease that impact that they're having each time they hit the ground? Right. So so that's a great question. And and unfortunately, there's, there's well, there's an easy answer and a not so easy answer. Um, you know, running is is a sport, you know, today. And most sports, like you're a big hockey player, and you practice skills, certain skills, right? You know, you're going to practice skating drills and shooting drills and like all these different skills involved with hockey. Um, And you see that across the board with every sport, you know, you're practicing certain skills. Runners typically, and I'm going to be very, you know, it's, this is very general, but runners tip- typically focus on volume, speed work, and distance. They don't actually practice the skill of running. Um, lots of times, if you go to a gym and you see people running on the treadmill, they either have, you know, their earbuds in or they're watching TV or something on their phone. Um, the same thing with being outdoors. You see people running with headphones and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you're going out for a long run and it's monotonous, sometimes it's great to have music on or, you know, something to distract you a little bit. But the big, the big important thing is the number one thing I would say is occasionally check in with yourself, you know, take the headphones off, 
don't watch TV. If you have a, if you're on a treadmill and you, and, and it's in front of a mirror, that's wonderful because you can watch yourself run, right? But the big thing is to listen and feel. You know, so kind of what every recent study has shown is it's that initial impact force. So start to run quieter, right? It, you know, if if you're running, you got these huge heavy foot pounding steps, um, that's not good. And that's a huge indicator that you might get injured. Um, but if you start to run more quietly and kind of, you know, you, you start to think about, you know, kind of floating versus pounding, that's hugely important. Um, so check in with yourself, you know, um, there are def- there are three different kind of uh, main systems of running. There's pose and chi and good form running, and um, they all have s- different systems of learning, and and they all have different skills to practice. You know, so similar to any other sport, they give you things to work on to help make you run better. But at the at, you know whichever one you choose, they all pretty much try to get you running more forefoot strike um, so that it lowers that impact force. Um, so, you know, looking into any of those and you can, you know, YouTube them or go to their websites or buy books on them, um, and, and find what's conducive to you, you know, um, is, is probably the best thing to do. Um, but that's, that's generally about it. Sometimes what they found is like overstriding has a, has a negative impact. So if you're overstriding, generally you're going to land with a heel strike, um, there are some people that overstride that land with a forefoot strike, but generally it's a heel heel strike. Uh, so figuring out what your running cadence is, you know, and some like wearable technologies like running watches and things will will measure that for you. Um, a simple way for you to do it is, you know, um, count how many times one foot lands on the ground over the course of twenty seconds. And take that number and multiply it by six, and that's going to give you how many how many running steps you're taking per minute. And the gold standard is generally about 180 steps per minute. That's what most elite runners run at. There's some thought that 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 number also like resonates with our body tissues and things like that. Um, so you know, most people that I see in the clinic when I get them on the treadmill, they're running usually in the 150s, maybe 160s, right? So another easy way to kind of shorten that that running stride up uh, is to get a, a, a little metronome app on your phone and start to work closer to a 180 steps per minute. You know, and that's plus or minus 10, you know. It's, it's not perfect, but um, you don't want to just... If you're at 150, you don't want to just jump up to 180. You want to... Uh, incrementally, like every two weeks go up by 5%, you know, so that your body can adjust. And, and that's the big thing too, Brady, like what, what you mentioned about the shoes, like, uh, ultimately it's, it's better to have a zero drop shoe for, for your foot compared to a 12 millimeter drop shoe. The reason for that is you, when you're wearing a heeled shoe, it shortens your Achilles it, your brain essentially thinks you're, you're standing on a downslope. So everything kind of shifts um, in your body to accommodate that downslope. So it throws off a lot of things mechanically. But 
because most people have worn shoes with heels throughout the majority of their life, their soft tissues and, and their motor planning has accommodated to that, right? So if you all of a sudden go from, um, you know, a heeled shoe to no heel in that shoe, it's going to put a tremendous amount of force on your Achilles and other joints in your body that have, and, and soft tissues that have accommodated to wearing that. So you, you need to very slowly progress to avoid other injuries and stress to other tissues that aren't ready to tolerate that. So that's, that's generally why you don't want to just go like all or nothing, you know? Uh, and, and we saw that when the, the Vibram five fingers first came out, uh, people, you know, thought, okay, this is going to help fix my running, uh, because I'm going to be more barefoot. And so people wore those shoes, jumped out and started running in those shoes. And, uh, didn't change their running gait, didn't adapt to it, and ended up having stress fractures and torn Achilles and and things like that because it was too much stress for their body to handle all at once. But, you know, if you worked really um, slow and over the course of 6 to 12 months or, you know, in my case, it took me two years um, to really get myself accommodated to that, um, you know, then your body adapts much better. So, so all of that, um, is kind of, I think, extremely interesting to a lot of runners that come in. Cause I think when I've seen you explain this to patients, um, it, it's a new for them and, and stuff that they kind of have never thought about before. Um, and a lot of times this is after you've, uh, you mentioned getting them on the treadmill and kind of watching them run. I, I've seen you like videotape in slow motion, um, their stride and how they're hitting. Um, what what might someone expect if they come in and see someone like you um, who obviously has all of this knowledge and um, <coughs> has worked really hard to go to the, some of these continuing education classes and is one of your passions when it comes to treatment and things like that? What can they expect when they walk in the door and you get them on the treadmill? And what um, what's kind of the course of treatment for them? Even if they might not have an injury, maybe they just kind of want, maybe they have a past history of injuries and they uh, want to get advice from from you on their stride and things like that. What what do they? What can they expect when they come in? Um, so so generally, like I like to look at how the whole body is working, right? You know, and I, I look at people from head to toe. Um, you know, if, if you come in with like a foot or a knee issue, um, the problem might not always stem from the foot or knee. You know, it, it could be, you know, maybe you had a shoulder issue a long time ago and there's tightness, which then le- links up to the hip, which causes poor mechanics at the hip, which then translates down into the knee or into the foot, right? So, so I generally start by looking at the whole body and see if there's any, um, you know, movement limitations and imbalances and things like that, you know, and obviously then I kind of like make my way to the, the trouble area. Uh, so, you know, and in the case of somebody that doesn't have any issues or, or active pain, I, I do the same stuff because, you know, potentially uh, an asymmetry or movement imbalance could potentially lead to an injury, right? So we're, we're going to kind of clear all that stuff out first. Um, and then, you know, work on strengthening the, the weak areas, 
um, mobilizing the, the joints that aren't moving as well as they should be moving and get, try to get the whole body a little more connected. And, um, I'm, a, I'm so, uh, another thing that I'm a huge believer in is strengthening the foot, like kind of going back to that analogy with the hand and not wearing a tight mitten on, on, on your hand, you know, so most people, because we've worn shoes throughout our whole life, have really weak foot musculature. Um, there was a, a study, again, by Irene Davis and, and um, a, a few other people from Harvard that came out in 2014. And what they did was they, they started to, to look at the foot a little bit differently um, and equate it to the spine. You know, when, when people have a back injury, you know, uh, it's really, you know, within, you know, clinicians and trainers and things like that, you know, we, we look at core stability and what is the core stability doing or not doing, right? And generally, you, you have these really small muscles that run along your spine. Um, you have, you know, a couple other really deep muscles that help control your spine. And that's really kind of like what, what gives our spine like this reactionary stability and, and, if those little muscles aren't doing their job, then the global movers are having a harder time, right? They, they try to work extra hard. They're not built for that. They're meant for moving, not for like being on and off all day. And you start to run into problems. So this study basically looked at the foot in the similar way. All of the deep layers of the, of, of the foot, you know, there's four layers of musculature, in the foot. And those are your core. And if those muscles aren't doing their job to help control the arches during your, your walking gait, then the muscles in your lower leg that help control the foot and ankle can overwork and, and cause issues, um, as well as creating too much stress on the plantar fascia and things like that. So working on reintegrating strength to the foot, I think is pretty paramount. So I have people start to do a lot of barefoot things. And for some people, that's really uncomfortable. People that are used to wearing shoes all the time, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. So we might start with, you know, very minimal, you know, maybe, you know, minutes, just minutes a day of trying to be barefoot on a soft surface in their house, you know, um, but working on different exercises to start conditioning those muscles, uh, getting the joints of the feet moving better. Generally, toe extension is a huge one. People seem to lack a lot of toe extension, um, which is important for good foot mechanics. So, you know, getting that moving better, getting the ankle joint moving better um, is, is pretty huge. Um, you know, and then we're going to work our way up to the hip and, and work on strengthening and better control of the hip. So, so there's a lot of really neat studies out that show that, you know, strengthening the hip muscles and things like that do a lot to help prevent injury. Um, so, uh, there, there was a, there was an article from 2014 entitled, can training, Redu uh, can training reduce your injury risk? And what they found is they, they looked at proprioception training and, and stretching and strength training. And what they found is that strength training had the number one impact on preventing injury. So 69% of the people in this study um, improved with strength training. And, and so what they found was over a, th uh, a third, um, it decreased their risk of overuse injuries 
and uh, or it, it decreased their their sports injuries, and then over half um, was was related to overuse injuries. So that that's huge, right? So strengthening very very important. At the same time, of another recent study done at Harvard looked at just strength training with runners and found that even though they got stronger, it did not improve their running gait. They still showed hip drop and collapse at the knee and and things like that. And what they have found is that you have to reprogram the running cycle itself, you know, improve your running gait, which comes into the, you know, lower impact forces. So running quieter and stuff like that. So, so strengthening on its own is not enough. You have to reprogram the system, which is incredibly difficult. Because again, if you're running 20 miles a week and over the course of a year, you're, you're striking over a million times with poor running form in order to override that system. It's, it's going to take some time and effort and work. So I really try to, you know, let people know that it's, it's on them, you know, like what they're going to get in here is the education piece, essentially, you know, we're going to do our hands on stuff to reduce any, any soft tissue issues, we're going to make the joints work better. Uh, We're going to start to give you exercises to strengthen yourself to support better and tips and ideas to start improving your running gait. But then essentially, like, it's repetition. It's training and working on improving that running gait and practicing the skill of running. So yeah, I was going to say, the skills that you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Um, so if we can transition a little bit. So we've, we've talked a lot about um, changing... Uh, your gait pattern while you're running to be a little bit more forefoot, obviously, to to keep some of those forces down through your body um, and how running barefoot can help with that and changing footwear can help with that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about orthotics. Mm-hmm. So orthotics is it's one of those pieces of equipment you put in your shoes and it obviously provides a lot of that structure and support that... Um, may take away some of the stress on your body to have to strengthen and accommodate for those forces that you're putting through. And I, you know, I've seen you fit people for semi custom orthotics or, um, have them go get custom orthotics done if, if that's what they want. Um, so which cases are you looking at somebody and saying, yeah, I think you do need to actually support your foot um, compared to the cases where you're like, well, let's try and be barefoot for a little bit more during the day because I think this will help alleviate your symptoms down the line if you're really willing to stick with it. Um, so how are you gauging what to do in kind of clinical practice? Sure. So with, with that, I think it's, you know, it's very individual. It's a lot of it depends, you know on the person and, and, and a whole gamut of factors. Uh, my general way of looking at an orthotic is to use it as a crutch, right? I don't want somebody to have to rely on an orthotic for the rest of their life. Um, I want their foot to do the work that it's intended to do and support the body. So if somebody comes in with um, you know, say, we'll, we'll use plantar fasciitis as an example, because that's a, a pretty typical one. And 
you know, if we'll, we'll initially w- work on all of the manual stuff that I described and, and the strengthening and things like that. If for some reason we're not getting anywhere or it's, it's going really slow and they're still having pain, um, you know, maybe I'll try taping their foot to help support it. And generally, if they get some relief with that, then an orthotic might be warranted uh, to help take that stress off to allow for that plantar fascia to start to heal better, right? Or allow for those muscles that might be like really knotted up and angry to start to calm down. But again, I don't want them to have to rely on an orthotic for the rest of their life. So I'm going to give them an orthotic to, to wear temporarily, right? So the idea is that they're going to wear that orthotic, during the course of their rehab while they're still working on strengthening and stretching and mobilizing and all of those good things um, so that eventually they can wean off of that orthotic and have a good healthy foot. Um, That being said, I look at the structure of the foot. Some people just structurally don't have a sound foot, you know, and it, and it leads to all kinds of, of abnormal forces applied on the body. And whether that is just something that they were born to have, or it's a result of, you know, maybe wearing too much supportive shoe for, for their whole life. Um, hard to say, you know, you see, you see that with like, we'll say bunions, you know, that you have a narrow toe box um, generally, it's seen in women more often than men, uh, and and you know you're, they're wearing high heels. Their their toe starts to gravitate in because there's pressures being applied to those. So then they start to form a bunion, right? So sometimes our feet adapt to the shoes in a negative way, and in that case, if structurally there's something not sound there, then you know perhaps a uh, a custom orthotic is much more warranted to help support those structural abnormalities, you know, and, and, you know, they're going to have to rely on an orthotic. So, so that, that, that absolutely happens. So, you know, I'm not against orthotics, but I I want an orthotic for the right purpose. Sure. Yeah. Um, And so I kind of want to get your thoughts on like different providers obviously have, like you said, like when you came out of college, you had or in PT school, you had much different thoughts on the foot than you did after you've kind of treated for a while and done more research and done more continuing education um, to kind of form your um, op- opinion based on lots of research and lots of practice and lots of experience, right? But even from physical therapist to physical therapist, some physical therapists are very much for, yeah, I really want to support the shoe. And whether or not, you know, you would say that's because they don't have like the proper knowledge or or whatever it might be, um, they're going to have differences. And so what would you say about the over-reliance some healthcare providers have where, you know, insurances pay for generally a custom pair of orthotics. Some insurance companies pay for them every two years. And so people go in and they get a new pair of orthotics every two years. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but I just wanted to get what your thoughts are on kind of those practitioners that maybe aren't taking a full picture look at things. Well, that's that's another question where it's, it depends. Yep. You know, um, 
there's no one perfect way to treat the human body. Nobody's really figured that out yet. You know, we're all individuals and we all come from different backgrounds, you know, um, and lifestyles and, and things like that. And, you know, we have specialists that, you know, their focus is on one certain area. So if you think about like a podiatrist and, and they're, they're focused on the foot, right. And the foot mechanics. And I think the, the common, um, more classic podiatrist way of thinking is, is really looking at the structure of the foot and, and, and if there's something off structurally and there's pain associated with it, support it, you know, and, and maybe not necessarily look up the chain as to what's going on. Now, that being said, you know, I've, I've read and listened to, um, some newer podiatrists that are out there that, that, have more of, I think, uh, a physical therapy way of thinking in terms of globally looking at the body and the function and all of that, that are, are starting to shift away from that classic podiatric method, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of what research have you seen? What, you know, um, what have your own clinical experiences led to, you know, um, what's the patient population that you're dealing with? Is it, is it people that want just a quick fix and to get rid of their pain? Or is it going to be active people that really want to take the initiative to help themselves? You know, um, it's, it's the, the practice environment that you're in and how much time do you have to spend with that patient? Right. You know, so if you only have 15 minutes to spend with somebody, the easy thing to do is to, you know, give them an orthotic, you know, uh, because you don't have the time to look at everything else uh, versus I think we're very fortunate in our clinic where we're able to spend time, you know, 45 minutes one on one with each person several times a week to really understand that person, you know, so I think we're, we're afforded more time to look at the whole system. But, um, but yeah, you know, my, my way of looking at it isn't the best. Um, but somebody, you know, nobody has the best, right. Um, I like the way that I look at it the best, um, because that's what works for me. It's what I understand, you know, the most. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm open to, you know, really anybody's way of thinking, um, because, you know, if, if, if their way of thinking doesn't work for a person, then they're going to find somebody else and, you know, work with somebody that, that can help them. And, and in my practice, I mean, I do the same thing. Like if I, if I'm noticing that, you know, where we're, the things that we're working on aren't helping, um, I'm going to find somebody that thinks different than I do, you know, and, and say, you know what, this hasn't worked for you, but you know, this person might have a different take on it. So I don't know if that answered the question or not. No, that's, that's that's a good point. I I really like the point about uh, like almost patient compliance and what they're willing to to put into it as well. Mm -hmm. Like you said earlier, it's like you really put the onus on the patient or, or athlete if, if they're really working towards some, something to, um, change their form and really put in the time and effort to, practice the skills you talked about with the with running mechanics and things like that um because yeah you might get an older client who 
just simply isn't willing to do something like that and they just want to feel less pain. Right. And so you might take a different approach with them as you would with a 20 to 40 year old runner who's constantly doing marathons or the Ironman races or whatever it might be. Absolutely. So, all right. So do you have any uh, last takeaways or things that you wanted to get across (laughs) that you might not have touched on? Um, Um, You know, I, I, we live in a pretty distracted world. You know, we have access to, you know, Netflix on our phones and, you know, music in our ears whenever we want it. And uh, I think that that kind of overall distracts us from what our bodies are telling us. You know, we get pretty far removed from ourselves. And I, I think, you know, if, you know, starting as at as early of an age as you can, if you start to just occasionally take those things away and just truly check in with yourself and be honest with yourself and what are you feeling and how does it feel when I move this way or that way um, is really one of the best things that you can do for yourself in helping to prevent injury. That being said, you know, injuries happen, you know, and sometimes seemingly for no reason at all. And it's frustrating, but I think the more in tune you are with yourself, um, the, the better the outcomes of those injuries are going to be too, you know? So I think you can help prevent injuries from happening. And I think you can, um, you know, you can, you can make yourself better by understanding yourself a little bit more. Uh, so I, I think that's one of the easiest things that people can start to do for themselves, especially with running. Um, you know, other things that I think are, are kind of neat to do with running, like, uh, when I when we were kids, you know, we were big fans of Michael Jordan, you know, and my brother and I would watch a, a Michael Jordan like best of video and, you know, get really psyched up and watch, you know, the things that he could do. And then we'd go out in the driveway and we would try to mimic that kind of stuff. Right. You know, so like if you're really into running like YouTube, some elite runners and see, like, watch them run and watch them glide over the ground, you know? Like, those people are amazing at running, and they've got incredible skill with running. So, like, watch that, you know? And then go out and try to mimic it, you know? Like, be a kid again and, and just and do that stuff. It's, it's pretty fun to do, actually. Yeah. So I would say that, like, you know, biggest takeaway, that that's what I would say. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's, like really a pleasure when you get to talk to somebody no matter what their passion is but obviously like you're really passionate about this and you've done a lot of work and research and effort and so like it gets me psyched into talking to people cool like that so thanks for coming on and i really appreciate it yeah thanks a lot brady it was fun and uh hopefully i wasn't too long-winded no it was good all right have a good one This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing exceptional one-to-one hands-on care to the greater Milwaukee area for over 25 years. Our physical and occupational therapists prepare custom plans for your condition to relieve pain and improve performance. Allow us to help you enjoy more freedom 
at freedompt.com.